Welcome again to the 21st episode of our Ideas and Lives series, where we uh, interview people with uh, interesting lives and compelling ideas. And today we're pleased to welcome Bill Sharp, Nobel Prize winner in economics, and uh, Sri Bodhi, my partner on this series, is going to introduce Bill properly as a fellow financial economist and colleague. It's all yours, Sri. Okay. Well, welcome, Bill, to the, we call it the Bob and Sri show. <laughs> and <laughs> I know you've had lots of interviews and uh, we are extremely appreciative that you've agreed to this one. I kind of, I should say, I kind of regard you as a mentor, even though I never took a course with you. G way back when you came out with your asset allocation tools, maybe that was in the 1970s or the 80s, I was among the adopters wow. and I and I used it in my classes. And so I've been, you know, following you all along closely. And I've been entertained by your satirical videos, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. The only thing I haven't had the pleasure of is hearing you play piano. Oh. <laughs> it, it's just, that's just as well. And I'm not sure pleasure is the term. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, so my first question is uh, you went to, uh, you studied economics at UCLA, although that wasn't, you were going to be a doctor. You started out. <laughs> but you, you say that uh, Armin Alkian and Fred Weston were your mentors. And uh, what did you get from them? Okay, let me start. Uh, well, Armin Alkian was uh, the microeconomist, I guess you would say, uh, in the economics department at UCLA. And um, he was a, a fabulous character and, and a fabulous economist. Uh, he would, I, I, I took, as a graduate student, I took his um, required three-quarter or two-semester, I can't remember which it was then, all-year course on microeconomics um, for graduate students. And he would come in and say, well, you know, it's interesting. We have free markets for things. I wonder why they don't have free markets for babies. <laughs> and, and he would scratch his head. Then he would turn to the board. And in the course of the hour or whatever the length was, he would, uh, he would sort of muddle through, think of this. Well, I don't know. I don't think that's, you know he'd draw some diagrams. He advised us not to read the literature because 92%, I think, was his number, was irrelevant. Um, and he's very opinionated, but a very sweet person. Uh, and uh, we graduate students would go back to the TA room where we had desks and discuss the session. And I would go home and type up my notes and, and then bring them in. We would make ditto copies and have another session. Um, but he, I would say, taught me to think like an economist. And I can bore you with what I mean uh, by that. How, how did you 
choose to go into economics and grad school? Well, I'll, 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 let me, I don't want to drop Fred Weston, so let me quickly talk about Fred. Sure. Um, as an undergraduate, I was a research assistant for Fred and got to know him personally quite well. And um, in our PhD program, we in economics were required, I think, to have five subfields. And I found in small print that one of them could be finance, which I knew next to nothing about. Um, so it was one of my five fields. And he was on my committee and, um, and, and was a, a very major influence. He was one of the very first economists, he was from Chicago, to go into the field of finance, which until then had been very much, very, let, let me say, pragmatic. As, as the nicest thing I can say about it. Right. Extension was, of accounting, right. Yes, well, yes, or, or worse. <laughs> but, uh, but you asked how I got in economics. I'll, I'll give you a short version. I went to Cal for my freshman year. My mother wanted me to be a doctor, and I had various revelations. I didn't like the sight of blood, and it seemed to me that was not a, a good portent. So I transferred to UCLA. Originally, I think I may have, I think in business, although I'm not sure we had to declare a major, but that was my intent. And one of the first courses I took was Econ 1, which was microeconomics, price theory, let's call it, from a lovely guy named Marvell Stockwell. It was a big lecture class with TA breakout sessions. I just loved that. I'd never had any inkling of what economics was about. None of, it was, of course, not taught in high schools in those days. And I just loved it. I loved how you could take an issue, you know, draw some diagrams, find where the two curves crossed, and that would be the price and the quantity. And, and I, just, I just thought it was wonderful. So I changed my major, had no notion what I was going to do for a living, but I didn't care. And then you yeah, went so to work went at grad school at UCLA. You, you well, he went to work for Rand. Well, both. Well, yes, both. Um, I I, had, I was in the RTC, so I had to do active duty, which would have been normally a two-year uh, gig, and uh, <clears throat> but I was able to postpone it a year uh, and took an, a master's in economics, and I'll tell you why. Um, in my senior year, I started interviewing banks because where else would an econ major work? And the typical interview would be, well, how are you? And let me look at your documents and, hmm, you have very good grades. And initially, I thought that was a good thing. <laughs> I learned for bankers at that time, at least it was a bad thing. And I, would, I, I towards the end, I would turn the form over and said, look, I mean, I was in a fraternity and I was Commodore of the Sailing Club and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm an actual human being. You could put me in front of your customers. But in any event, the job search didn't go particularly well. And um, so I decided to stay on and get a, a master's, a one-year master's, and then go into the service. Where did you do the service? Did the service at Fort Lee, Virginia. I was in the Quartermaster Corps. And, and had, I'll tell you one anecdote from that period. 
and I, it was shortened to six months because of my my job at Rand, and then eight years of reserve. But um, in in that setting, I discovered that about half the enlisted men had not completed high school, and that there was a high school equivalent set of courses and diploma available. So I gave a pep talk and got a large number of them to sign up, uh, which made me a persona non grata with the other enlisted men because the people in the course didn't have to pull kitchen duty, latrine duty, whatever. <laughs> and so the others had to do more. But I was very pleased with that. And I'm, I'm a, a great believer in compulsory service with mixing of people, um, as is done in Switzerland and Israel. And, right. Uh, I, I just I just think sociologically, that's that's an extremely good idea. I learned a lot. Yeah, it's never caught on as a uh, as a political, you know, not in, this not in this country. No, I mean, there was, the, you know, we talked about the Peace Corps and some of the other things, but the idea that it would be compulsory. I mean, we're so siloed in, in this country. And it's, it's well, we did have the draft for a period. And uh, well, we had, I mean, but, but, but I'd rather not have to go to war to get this right thing right. to happen. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Listen, we can't even make uh, vaccination mandatory. Uh, yeah, yeah, yes, indeed. You're, you're right on that one. <laughs> All right. So you went. Um, so so at that point, you did your service and then you worked for Rand before or during your UCLA no, um, period. I had uh, I talked to Armin Alchin. Armin was one of many people in the department who was doing part time consulting at Rand. Rand was in Santa Monica, very close to Westwood. And um, I said, you know, I, this Rand Corporation sounds like just the place I would be happy. Um, can you get me a job there? And he said, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so he did. And uh, as a result of that, I was able to shorten my active duty to six months. So I went, so I did the bachelor's, master's, active duty, Rand, and that was the sequence. And then you ran into Harry Markowitz at Rand, right? Um, yes, uh, in a kind of a convoluted way. Um, I was in the logistics department doing operations research kinds of things rather than sort of traditional economics. And um, I had started a uh, dissertation on transfer pricing you know, within a corporation yeah. having division A who makes the chassis, sell the chassis to division B, which assembles the car, et cetera. Um, and I thought it was it was pretty good dissertation um, with Alch and, and, and Fred Weston. And Armin, I guess, told me um, the um, Jack Herschleifer, who had been in Chicago and was moving to UCLA, who had done the seminal work that I was building on, is coming, and he's going to be actually at Rand. Why don't you go talk to him and see what he thinks? He should be your chair. So I introduced myself to Jack, handed him my 50% of my dissertation, 
said, give me a week. And Jack, who was another wonderful human being, was um, said, you know, Bill, I, I just don't think there's a dissertation here. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> so I went to Fred Weston and said, Fred, what am I going to do? He said, well, in, you know, you might really like that work by Harry Markowitz. He's coming to Rand. <laughs> Why don't you go talk to Harry and see if he thinks there might be something there? So I went to talk to Harry, and that was how I started down the path. I can tell you about the three parts of the dissertation, if you, unless you're already very bored. No, 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 no. This is what we want to hear. Go for it. Go for well, it. The, the first part was um, sort of playing with and writing an algorithm to, to compute what's called what I called the single index model. Sometimes I've called it the diagonal model, but this basically assumes that the only way in which security A moves with security B is because of some, they're both in the market. So there's a sort of a single factor that most securities respond to, um, and then their idiosyncratic part. So, um, and I called it diagonal model because when you set up a matrix, that's what it looks like. So the first one was building some algorithms and writing some programs. Um, probably the first economics dissertation with the program, programs in it. Um, and then the second part, Fred had put me in touch with an actual financial advisor in, in LA and he and I sort of worked out a scheme where he would create inputs for a single index diagonal model. And then I would run it and see if the portfolios made, that it produced made any sense to them. And it turned out they didn't. <laughs> and, uh, and then the third part, I did what economists, microeconomists are trained to do. Assume everybody's optimizing. <laughs> And they go to market and prices adjust. What, what can you say about the, the equilibrium, the, the prices that, that ensue? And so uh, I did that. And I got this wonderful result about, you know, the only, risk, the only risky portfolio you should consider has almost no risk other than that associated with the market as a whole, and beta is a measure of the sensitivity of a security to the market, and the expected returns in an equilibrium should be related to the betas. And um, so it was it was a, the precursor, if you will, of the capital asset pricing model. But it assumed that the only correlation between two securities was due to their relationship with the, this market factor. And so when I went to the University of Washington Business School, after I, I finished the dissertation in June, went to UW in September, and I thought, this is, this is a really nifty idea <laughs> and, and, and conclusion. I just went, but it was sort of, I sort of felt like I put the rabbit in the hat by making the assumption that about the covariances, about the relationships, and then I'd pulled it out. 
And, 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 and so I thought, boy, wouldn't it be great if I could get that result without making the assumptions? Just create the rabbit out of first principles. So I played around with things and in two or three or four months, found out I didn't need the assumptions. The result was more general. That was the capital asset pricing model. That's more, you know, I'm, wow. I'm sorry and to so, talk me when I go on with these answers. No, because, so, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So you came up with that um, as in a way an extension of your dissertation. Yes. Um, we recently interviewed a physics Nobel Prize winner. Uh, so you forgot to mention Bill's Nobel. But anyway. Uh, I was saving it for later. <laughs> oh, okay. Physics Nobel, who also um, got the Nobel for his work as a postdoc, which really? was at first, was at first uh, not fully recognized. Now, was your um, CAPM extension of what you had started with, with your dissertation, was that um, quickly recognized by the profession or did it take a little while? Well, for some of your younger viewers, uh, I need to explain. In those days, communication was by mail and by telephone. <laughs> and um, there was, uh, I actually finished that paper for all practical purposes in the spring of 62. And it was originally rejected by a referee for the Journal of Finance. And I appealed and then the editorship changed. And it, in any event, it took till 64 for the publication. Um, so when it was published, um, I thought, well, the phone's going to start ringing, <laughs> and it didn't. <laughs> and, and and I waited. I sat by the phone in my office, and it didn't. And um, I, I got almost no reaction for months. Um, and I thought, I know this is going to be the best paper I will ever write, <laughs> <laughs> and nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, so it was a very different world, but eventually people started noticing it. Well, let me let me ask you about that. There were uh, four people that I know of who, around that same time, more or less independently, I think, came up with some version of a capital asset pricing model. Uh, what was the name of the well? So there was. Uh, you'll have to help me I, here. I, I can only probably find you three, but um, in the process, the paper was floating around. I'd given a version of it at a at a sort of a small seminar that Wells Fargo arranged, but Mert Miller was there and and, and a number of other people, and um, the. Uh, so the result was out there, um, to some extent at least. And um, I heard in the process, after I'd written it, submitted it, and presented it, I heard that Jack Trainer, who was then a PhD student at Harvard, I, I, yeah, I think that's right, um, 
had something similar. And so I corresponded with Jack. And um, and so I, I first learned of that after the paper was finished and blah, blah, blah. And then, uh, and then John Lintner published a paper a year. Well, he called me after my paper was published and said, well, there's something wrong in your paper. And, and you know, he introduced himself. And I said, well, okay. And he said, I would, you know, we need to talk and, and maybe if you write something, a retraction or something, I won't publish against yours. He said, I have a similar result. So we met at the uh, annual economics conference in New York, I think it was. And um, I can't say that I ever fully understood what his objection was. I wrote a sort of a strange little footnote that was published in the Journal of Finance, which only indicated I didn't really understand what he was saying. Um, and then Jan Mosin did a was working at UCLA and he did a paper. Um, but Jan had said that he knew had read my paper. Um, Jack's work was was definitely Jack came at it from a corporate finance standpoint, so he came in a different direction. Yeah, Jack Trainer, according to Jack Trainer, who I discussed this with, he he took it to Franco Modigliani. And Franco was unimpressed. <laughs> yeah, he said, "Yeah, yeah, I think, I think, I, I've heard that story, and um, got to know Franco and had some, had some slightly argumentative discussions with him over a couple of matters at a conference." Um, but <clears throat> yeah, I think. Well, well, again, Jack came to it in a different way. Uh, you know, sort of from a cost of capital, as I recall. So it didn't, and at least the version of his paper that, that I had read back when, um, again, long after I'd finished and submitted mine, um, it, it didn't it didn't seem to have the import in terms no. of that uh, that mine did. But I'm not saying he didn't have a similar result. He did. Right. The uh, there's another thing, you know, you sort of were first in a lot of different things in <laughs> finance that some of which you haven't really gotten credit for. And one of them uh, is it turned out to be really, really important for financial engineering. And that is the binomial option pricing. Oh, oh thank you. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um... Well, I'll tell you the story of that. And I'm, if I'm telling too many stories. No, no we want stories. stories. We want because, stories. Because my friends in, in Carmel, where I've lived for now 20 plus years, uh, tend to be uh, doctors and medical researchers, et cetera. And they have no interest in uh, these topics. So, so this is a great opportunity. Um, yeah. <clears throat> the... Uh, I wrote a textbook, um, which USV will relate to, and um, yeah, I used I taught from that textbook for and, years. Uh, and and I when I did, was working on the chapter on options, I thought you know of course I put the Black Scholes model in. I mean you know one does, but I thought you know this is I mean it's just this formula, 
And, and in a textbook, you sort of want to get people to understand why it's this formula or, you know, what, what's the economics. And so I started playing. I said, well, I'll do an example. My initial example was you buy a stock for 100 and it can go up next year to 120 or to down to 90. That's it. Chance 50-50, let's say. Uh, and somebody offers you a deal where they'll pay you something if it goes up. How much you know, should you pay for that particular deal? And um, so I started playing around and got a nice little result. And then I played around some more and I found that if you make the interval not a year, if it's got a year of maturity, but a half a year, it jumps once in a half a year, then it jumps again in another half a year. Uh, you've got a somewhat different result because among other things, you've got more points, et cetera. And in any event, and then I found, and I started writing some programs, and I found that if you made the interval between now and the maturity shorter and shorter, uh, the result converged to the Black-Scholes pricing model. And I thought, well, that's very cool. And somewhere in the process of, of playing around with this, John Cox, who was a colleague at Stanford and used to come to work at five and like to talk before he started doing research into the night, came to my office and said, well, you know, what are you working on? I said, well, let me show you this, John. So I showed it to him and he said, well, that's really interesting. I'm in the midst of writing a paper with a couple of colleagues, Steve Ross and Mark Rubenstein um, on options. And this would really fit in nicely. Uh, would you like to be a co-author? And I said, no, no, I don't need to be a co-author. Give me a nice footnote or prefatory remark, which by the way, they did. Uh, so that was where it was published and, and in my textbook. <laughs> and, um, and uh the thing that's neat about it is you can value all kinds of things. You know, you do it in a multi-period with discrete jumps, make the periods short, and you can do options that have, that can be cashed in before maturity. You can do all kinds of weird things. And at some point I know Mark told me that the industry was using that binomial and then there came other people did trinomial with three branches, blah, 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 but was using those discrete computerized valuations uh, in some ways more than Black-Scholes formula, which, which I doubt, and Black-Scholes-Merton as, as, as it's now said appropriately because Bob was involved. Um, anyway, so that, that was that. Yeah, and well, that, the, that yeah. the binomial. Yeah, I did a little bit. I did a couple of papers that that used some of that, but I didn't really do much more with it. So it, the binomial model is is known as the Cox Ross Rubenstein, uh, Rubenstein yes, model, yes. CRR, and yes. it's it's really CRRS. Well, if you read it, you know, if you, if you read the paper, there's a nice note right in the forward to the to the paper about we got this from sharp <laughs> but but you know so be it 
<laughs> well, yeah, you you got your Nobel Prize, and uh, not for that. <laughs> no, yeah. I know none none well, of the others did. By Cox, the way, Ross, our, our physics our physics Nobel Prize winner also told us that he did something subsequently. You'll you'll be able to watch it. Uh, he did something subsequently that you know would have done it more, and uh, he had already he had already won won one. So uh, well, I, I I would just quarrel with that to the extent I don't think anybody really knows what would have or could have or should have won. Right. <laughs> Maybe yeah. Should right. Have, but so, uh, so everybody's yeah, got their favorite. Yeah. He should have gotten a Nobel Prize. You all know this, but, but some of your listeners might not. But um, the, the year that, that Harry Markowitz and Mark Miller and I won was the first prize that went to a, somebody for work in financial economics or finance. Uh, there had been prior ones with Franco Modigliani who had done work in the field, but that wasn't even, I think, cited significantly. And I at least had convinced myself that finance, financial economists would, would never get the prize. And so it was, it was truly a, a surprise. It was 1990. Mm-hmm. And that was the first of what turned out to be many. You know, I think there have been more Nobel Prizes in the field of financial economics than in any other subfield. Um, probably than any other subfield. Not, not, I don't think there have been more than in all the other subfields combined. I mean, even <laughs> since then. No, 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 no. no, no. But, but there have been, you're right, there have been, there have been a number. And of course, then you get into you know, arguments as to how you define the field. Um, well, that's that's um, because of uh, Tzvi's friendship uh, when I was chair at uh, American University's economics department, we created a, a master's program in financial economics for public policy. Hmm. And um, it then came home to me how much of the separation between economics and finance um, has been the case um, with uh, typically finance departments not in economics departments and uh, resulting in what I believe to be a very poor knowledge of the finance contributions by mainstream economists. Uh, Do you have that feeling? Well, yes. Um, again, I'm not current enough to really speak to the current situation. Um, it was certainly the case when I went to Stanford, and I must admit, I uh, I befriended some folks in the econ department, which was in another building, of course, and uh, and I actually begged to be allowed to at least teach econ one in the department, which I did. Um, and uh, so I, I and some of them tried to bridge the gap a bit. But yes, it was, it was very definitely the case. And, and when I started in finance, uh, there was a good reason for economists not to circulate with finance people because it, was, it wasn't much theory there. There wasn't much rigor. 
Uh, it was sort of tales, right. case studies, what have you. It was and, really the 1970s that saw finance become. That's right. Uh, yeah. a, you know, a well-established discipline. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I have to mention this book, one of my favorites, uh, Investors and Markets by none other than uh, <laughs> Bill Sharp. This was his Princeton lectures back, I guess it was in the 90s still, the 1990s. No, it was, I think it was in the 2000s. 2000s? I, I, we could look. Yeah, 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 you're right, you're right. But what's interesting is rather than develop the subject using the capital asset pricing model, Bill went back to more basic Arrow de Bruh state preference theory. And I, I really, I, I respect that a lot. Well, really. can I, can I riff on that? Yeah, you better, that? you better give a short, <laughs> now we're getting even more technical. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, well, th th that's a very, very important subject that I would like to say a little bit about. Um, finance and financial economics, at least in the investment area and in the uncertainty area, came basically from Harry Markowitz's work. Um, um, that, that was the, the root. I mean, you can go back for interest rates and such to um, you know, the 30s for that matter, but, uh, but certainly a lot of it came. Uh, the, the finance dealing with uncertainty, let me say, came in large part from Harry's work and then mine and then on and on it went. Harry being in the 1950s and then mm -hmm. 60s. That was in the so 60s. Sharp. And, yeah. and uh, finance and the business schools had been case studies. Here's what they did. And, and, and it was only when actually in Fred Weston's generation and much of it at Chicago, where you started getting economics applied to issues of finance. And then and there was a strand that didn't deal with uncertainty. And then the strand that I trace back to Harry deal, dealt with uncertainty. And so finance and the business schools sort of came um, from those backgrounds. Um, as I say, I, I insisted on teaching Econ 1 in the, in the department just to prove that I knew something about Econ 1 at least, as opposed to, you know, portfolio theory and capital markets. Um, and it has, slow, it has moved, um, but there still is a division. Um, there's certainly... I taught an, an econ upper division course um, in the economics department at Stanford. Um, and uh, so uh, it's moved, but there, there, there certainly was in, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, a real division, which was most unfortunate. Uh, but now if you, if you look at the price, just look at the econ prizes and you'll see, you know, Econ people in econ departments getting prizes for work, some of which we think of as part of finance and etc. And to go to Ken Arrow's work, um, 
Harry's model and my work that came out of it were sort of continuous. You know, you had a thing that could have been, you know, a return on a portfolio that could have been any of a bunch of numbers uh, between X and Y. And um, so you had sort of, of that view. And about the time of Harry's work, Canal and somewhat independently Gerard de Bru, uh, then at Stanford and Berkeley, Cal Berkeley, did this fantastic grand theory. And in theirs, basically, uncertainty was different states of the world. And, uh, and they didn't even, probabilities of those states didn't play, a, as I saw it, at least a, a major role. And they did, they built fantastic models of equilibrium, et cetera. And I had first learned about that quite early on after my dissertation and found it quite fabulous and fascinating. So I all, from the start, tried to look at the world in some sense in both ways. You had a paper uh, that I love. In fact, I used to teach it all the time, nuclear financial, economic, what was it? Nuclear? <laughs> I remember the title. I don't remember the paper. I can't tell you that. But it uh, was Arrow Debra. It was, it was state it preference. Was. Yeah, and I, I did a book on portfolio theory in the, what was it? I think it was published in 70, maybe. And I had a chapter there in, the, in it on Arrow Debru, which was a mess. I mean, it's, I'm embarrassed to, to even talk about it. It was just a mess. But I was trying to think in, in those terms. And, and Jack Hersleifer that I mentioned earlier did some wonderful work coming at uncertainty in that manner. Um, but uh, so I, I started trying to think about the world in that way and that chapter in this revision of my textbook. I don't think it was it in the original version. It might have been, but in any event, it was it was it, it didn't didn't work out. I, I'm not very pleased. I was not very pleased with it in retrospect. But um, but yes, uh, it seemed to me that that's an important way. And then the uh, investors and markets is a book that came out of the Princeton lectures, as you said. And there I tried to start with a state preference. You know, you have three states of world. You'll, you'll get this or you'll get that or you'll lose that. And, and then uh, he pointed out that yeah. that's consistent with the capital as a pricing model. It is. But it was, I, yeah, that was well, almost a footnote. Well, no. Well, actually, there's a chapter in which I derive, derived a result, but it's not the traditional CAPM result, right. <laughs> which um, and and that book, I, I was looking back at that book because I think you'd mentioned it when we talked. Um, and for that book, I wrote this humongous suite of programs, which I wrote in the C language, uh, which is one of the most disgusting programming languages <laughs> that was ever invented. And I wrote, I somehow or other learned enough, uh, 
and I wrote all these programs in the C language and I put them on my website. And I just this morning went to the website and found, yes, it's there, but the link is broken, <laughs> and, uh, which is just as well. Um, but the whole idea was to try to, I was trying to, in the book and on the lectures and in the book to give a sort of a, an overview of financial economics under uncertainty building from more of a state, you know, it can be A, B, or C. And, um, and I, I wrote the book, hopefully for a master's course, level course, and thought, and, and so I, I used a lot of, instead of lots of formulas, because I, my math is trivial, um, I wrote programs that would just keep going till there was an equilibrium established between these two right. people and, and then look at the properties. And so that's how the book was written and the programs behind it. Um, but you've always tried to bring it all the way down to the world of practical finance, practical well, asset allocation. A, I have, a, I have. An, that raises an, another question that I have, which is, uh, now, I, I finished my graduate school before uh, the 70s revolution of, in finance. Uh, maybe I would have majored in it, but it wasn't around quite yet. Um, and um, I've always, uh, when I uh, started looking at works on um, uncertainty and risk, um, I, I have found that um, the finance way of looking at it is actually a lot simpler than what economists sometimes create in, in their models. Um, and I wonder what, whether you have that same impression. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert on this. So, um, Well, yes and no. First of all, my work certainly conforms to that description. <laughs> Uh, my mathematics was a an introductory some one semester course in calculus at a local junior college that I took when I was at the Rand Corporation. Uh, that's that's my entire math, and and many of my colleagues would say, yeah, and it shows. So, <laughs> well, but you're a programming whiz. Oh uh, well, I don't know if a whiz, but I I've done a lot of programming, and I, I don't know you. If, I think V, you've read the book Trillions. Um, and uh, he, uh, Robin, and the author of that book, which is a wonderful book on indexing funds, um, calls me programmer economist. <laughs> which, there you go. Which, which I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to accept as a, as a, as a title. Um, well, let's go back to the question about um, handling uncertainty in most economic models and, and in uh, finance models. Well, there was no uncertainty in economic courses, beginning courses, certainly in my day. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, and uh, it sort of crept in bit by bit in Econ 1. But it's, um, I don't, I can't honestly say what's, what is in those textbooks or what is taught. But I would think, I find Arrow de Bru, state preference, states of the world, a much easier way to describe uncertainty and 
equilibrium pricing, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what I did in investments and markets. So I would hope that in the econ courses, they come at, at it in that manner. Well, I, also, I, let me just say very quickly, I cannot read or at least choose to not read the vast majority of articles in the major finance journals these days. They are so mathematical and I just don't have the math. Um, and um, so, so in some ways I use discrete, that is states of the world approaches in thinking about things because I have to <laughs> rather um, than using elegant continuous time mathematics. Yeah, it's uh, the the uh, quantitative finance stuff is often located in math departments uh, rather than yeah. in the business school. I don't yeah. know how it is at Stanford. Um, uh, uh, I was well. Well, I, I'm not. I don't really know what is now taught in the econ. I taught the introduction, introductory econ course in the MBA program a few times. And um, at that point at Stanford, when in the earlier days, um, one of the faculty members who, was, who actually has recently won a Nobel Prize, a fabulous mathematician, was adamant that there should be no requirement that you have calculus to take courses in the MBA program, at least the required courses. And so, um, I would start my class talking about, well, here's this curve. And if you have a teeny weeny little change <laughs> to get the notion right. of, a, of a slope, you know, as right. a first derivative, but I didn't call it a first derivative. Right. Oh. Uh, now let's talk about your contributions to the practice of finance. When did you start getting into that as a consultant first, and then uh, you had some monumental consulting jobs, didn't you? <laughs> I don't know if they're monumental. Um, well, you you were the uh, brains behind the first robo-advice engine, financial uh, engines. It now was, it's I don't think it was, it, it, it almost certainly wasn't the very first. There was at least, as I recall, some guy in San Francisco that was pretty much contemporaneous. I don't think much came of that. But, um, <clears throat> well, I, you know, I always, and again, Rand, you know, as I, you know, I, I, Rand made me. I'm a creature of the Rand Corporation, at least in that time, and um, which involved theory in practice. <laughs> Very applied to practice, etc., and so I always had that focus once I joined academe. So I consulted for Merrill Lynch quite early on uh, in New York, and um, then associated with uh, Bill Faust's group. I, I think of it at, at, at Wells Fargo, and then did some firms of my own, which we can talk about if you're interested in financial engines, one of them, uh, the, the latter one, certainly applying factor models, 
equilibrium pricing, et cetera, et cetera. The, uh, I remember in the early days, like the 60s and 70s, firms on Wall Street would hire a quant. They called them token quants. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, not, just not to, to say, not to your face. They, they, they that's, that's right. That's yeah. right. Because, because they didn't take it seriously, but they just felt, well, everybody had to have a quant, you know, so they could say, yes, we've got the most advanced models, which nobody paid any attention to. And oh, that yeah. has completely turned around. Yeah. The, the group that I consulted with, had for a period been headed by Jack Trainer, who had left to, to be the editor of the Financial Analyst Journal. And it was headed by Gil Hammer when I was there. And, um, and basically we produced, we produced, for example, a beta book in which the head of your corporate pension fund could look up the beta of a stock uh, if, to see how sensitive it would be for market moves. And we provided a consulting service in which we could go in and look at your pension fund and estimate the beta of your pension fund in terms of how, and if for that matter, the residual risk, the risk over and above that of the market. And, you know, was it all play gaming or done, you know, for the, <laughs> to show that- Marketing, marketing. Well, or in the part of the pension fund, we've met our fiduciary responsibility. We have these statistics. Of, of course, there was some of that. Um, I, I liked to think at the time it wasn't just that, or it wasn't wholly that. But um, some of the earliest work in applying the theory. And, and in my case, I learned things which allowed me to produce better theory, more maybe different theory than had I not. And again, the whole idea of being close enough to practice and yet close enough to theory to provide things that are useful um, and somewhat elegant at the same time was something I'd learned at Rand. Yeah. Now in your uh, retirement at the ripe old age of uh, 88. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> Not yet, but about 87 and 87. a half. Close, yeah. Uh, are you still consulting actively or, or are you just, well, I say just, I know that you're busy putting out, doing research because you, you make it all accessible at your website. Um, well, no, I'm not consulting, have not been for oh, a number of years now. Um, and, um, and I'm doing research to some extent, but as I mentioned before, my, my, my friends here, we used to have coffee groups. Now we have Zoom groups uh, and some, you know, um, happen to be a group of really fascinating people, but many of them with PhDs or MDs. Um, but they tend to be predominantly, you know, you know, in the sciences and in particular in medical areas. Um, so I don't have very many conversations over coffee, 
except with with you, Zvi, who we we have come. Well, to I I of course appreciate your sense of humor. <laughs> His he's got he's got some really funny satirical animations that he's done. One of them is called The Wrong Financial Advisor. Wrong Investment Advisor. I think wrong Investment Advisor. Uh, yeah, let me, let me, and let's tout that. And there are a couple of others, but that's the one that has the, I mean, some huge number of views uh, on YouTube. And has been translated, right? Uh, my, my, actually, my grandson translated it into Spanish, I think. Oh, no, no, it was some people in Portugal, I think. But or even though they were in Portugal, they translated it into Spanish. The uh, that that arose from one of my joint surgeries, <laughs> and, and I was recuperating and not sleeping well, and so I, I sort of came up with this idea. And there was this wonderful software, free, basically free. It cost a modest amount to use, but um, where you could produce these sort of totally unrealistic, cartoony characters and have right. them talk to each other. And I did that, and I did two others, one on a pension fund, pension fund method that I opposed, and I can't remember what... The pension one. obligation bond the one. Pension is obligation bonds, yeah, and then I can't remember what the third one was. They were nowhere near as popular, but... Well, because they're a little bit esoteric. Well, and Jason Zwig didn't send out a, a link to all his entire mailing list, which is right. what... Right, right. Any other, but he's he's the Wall Street Journal uh, finance yeah, correspondent. Great, great human being and a great great guy all around. Yeah, um, but but yeah, um, I put in sort of you know all the bad uh, and 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 the the unrealism, you know, lack of realism in the cartoon characters. I think makes it even funnier. Yes, it does because they really are obviously you know mechanical. Yeah, I, just 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 to build on that a minute, um, as V knows, I have taught Scratch programming, programming in a language developed at MIT over many years um, to kids in a summer program here, and um, and I I wrote and and they added to Scratch the ability to have voices, and you can even choose not only the voice, but also the language, you know, and, and uh, um, so, so it will translate and et cetera. And I did two or three things on retirement using that scratch and made them publicly available on my blog, but they have not generated. I think I looked up that's been, been up for three or four years and the number of, of views is somewhere around 80 or 90, just nothing. I know. Yeah. I, my, my books for the mass market have suffered uh, a similar kind of fate. Well, investor uh, markets was, was remaindered within 12 months. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, that's all right. Well, wow. It's uh, what, what a career. Now, now, of course, with this interview, it's going to just go viral. Viral. That's right. That's well, right. for people in the know, it is, and uh, we we really uh, we really appreciate it. I, I hope you've enjoyed uh, the interview as well. We love to hear these stories, uh, and 
of course, you can hear more stories, very interesting stories with some of our other. Uh, Indeed. Yeah, now we're up to 21. Uh, you're amazing. I, I, I must say, say I, you know, I've always feared interviews, especially recorded ones where you can't, you know, say, well, let me say that again. Um, but I knew Z was a really splendid fellow to, to chat with. And now I know that you both are. So I thank you both. Well, thank you very much. We, Thank you we, for having we, me. And we can't I, do any better than that, but we do have a an important ending. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is our ending. Zai Gesund. That is Yiddish, and it means be well, but it really, that's how you say goodbye. Zai Gesund. Zai Gesund. Lovely. I will, I will try to remember it and add to my relatively small stock of Yiddish expressions. <laughs> thank, okay, you. Well, thank, thank you both very much and, and stay safe. Okay. <laughs> Bye -bye. I'm, I'm Bye -bye. going to stop the recording.